and a great truth about who we are. We are the church of Jesus Christ, and we were meant to function as a body. That's why we need each other. This church thing is alive, and it's a group effort. None of us you know, stands alone in this, whether we believe that or not. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks. Slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. That's really good news, because it means that we're all in this deal together. And if you're a believer... You can think that you can make it through this life on your own, but like it or not, you're a part of the body, one part of the body, and you'll never be able to function to your fullest potential as God intended for you to until you work in harmony with the other parts of the body. Okay, in verses 14 through 21, Paul continues, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. You see, you can, you can say it all you want, and you can even believe that you don't need anybody else in this life to help you or work with you, but believing that doesn't make it a reality. The reality is, you are a part of the body. And you're one part that needs all of the other parts. Verse 17, if, if the whole body were an eye, where would, the, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Okay? So clearly, we need each other in order to function as God intended us to. And, and the reason I'm bringing all of this up today is to remind us that as we work through these sermons and these sermon series uh, like we do, and we talk a lot about our individual lives and needs and, and challenges and so on, it's really important that we always put those issues and those challenges and our response to those in the larger context of the body of Christ. Okay, Because when the hand is affected by something, the entire body is affected by it. Right? If you hurt your hand, the rest of your body has to compensate in order to accomplish the same task as when the hand is healthy. It taxes the rest of the body when one part isn't functioning like it's supposed to. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to hang out with the Philippian church and the Apostle Paul as he challenges them and ultimately all of us to go all in, to, to live this life of faith, this journey of following Christ. And we'll see that Paul, using himself as an example, lays down a challenge, not just for the individual, but for the church at large, that when it comes to living for Christ, he says it's all or nothing. And everything that we choose to do or not do as individuals affects the rest of the body, okay? As we get older, we tend to become more balanced in some areas of our life, or at least we should, and we learn moderation, how to, how to balance work and play and relationships and so on. And it's all a part of maturing and gaining life experience. 
But when it comes to following Christ, there's no room for moderation. There is no balance. There's no place where we need a little less of Jesus so we can fit something else in. And it's not that we replace relationships with Jesus or replace work with Jesus or stop having recreation for the sake of Christ. It's that he's supposed to permeate all of that, all of the time, everywhere we go, and in everything we do. He's in the midst of it. It's all about Jesus Christ. So forget balance. Go ahead and and swing the pendulum all the way to Jesus and let him rule over and dwell in every single area of your life. That's the message, at least in part, of Paul to the church in Philippi. Okay, it's all or nothing. And if you've ever experienced a moment in your life when you've had to either be all in or all out, you know what it's like to have to, to make those kind of decisions. You know what I mean? Generally, I think... Life allows us the time to process decisions and, and weigh our options and try to anticipate the outcome, calculate the risk. And once in a while, what you're left with is a stark reality that when it comes to this particular decision, fill in the blank, whatever it is for you, you realize, I'm going to have to either be all in or all out on this one. It, it's all or nothing. There's no third choice. There's no in-between no version of compromise. It's black and white, and I have to choose. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been there? I, I certainly have at times in my life. As most of you know, we lived in Alaska for several years, and during that time, I was introduced to many firsts in my life. Shoveling snow every single day for months. Driving uh, on hard-packed snow and ice every day for months at a time. Ice fishing and hunting and, and camping with wolves and bears and moose and caribou sharing the woods with you. This is all new to me. Watching uh, orca whales swim by your boat. Uh, they're going after the same fish that you are, right? Crazy. Going to the grocery store at 45, 50 degrees below zero. You know, all the parking spaces at Walmart have outlets. They have a pole at every space with an electrical outlet. And they have these heaters attached to your engine and your battery and your transmission and your oil pan and your radiator. And there's a plug sticking out of the front of your car. It's the goofiest thing you've ever seen in your life. All these people driving around with a, with a plug sticking out of their car. And you pull up to Walmart and you plug your car in. Because if you don't, you're walking home. Your car isn't going to start at 50 below when it's been sitting outside while you're shopping. It's crazy. We used to drive our truck on the frozen river that went right through the middle of Fairbanks to get to our friend's house, to Dina's house, because it was quicker than taking the road in the wintertime. So we'd pull our 10,000-pound SUV down onto the, onto the river and drive a few miles up the river to their house. There were a lot of firsts for us in Alaska. And one of those for me was learning to ride a snowmobile, or as they say in Alaska, a snow machine. That's what they call them there. And over those years that we lived there, I went snow machining quite a bit. We would get a bunch of guys together from the church. The men's ministry would do it a lot. And we would meet up at a trailhead and we'd ride back into the mountains 40 or 50 or 60 plus miles. And we'd build a big fire or we'd go to a cabin and we'd make lunch or dinner. It was a great time. 
We followed a pack of wolves one time up a frozen river for miles. We used to see moose and grizzly bear everywhere, caribou. It was, it was always a lot of fun to do that, and I got used to that. But one time we went was particularly different than all the others. One time we decided we were going to ride out to a friend's cabin. It was a really remote cabin beside a river, Beaver Creek, way out deep in the mountains. That's a picture of it. And so we did, and, and it was great. And we got there, and we built a campfire, and we made lunch, and we just had this great time. And when it was time to leave, the guy that was leading the trip said, okay, it's time to cross the river. No big deal. We cross the river all the time. He said, we're going to take a, a, a bit of a different trail back so we're not seeing the same scenery. And as I looked out over the frozen river... Right where we were going to cross, there was a large section of open water. And this was actually fairly common, a common phenomenon in Alaska during the, the winter. The rivers would, of course, freeze over, four or five feet thick of ice. But where there were particularly fast currents or certain types of currents, fast water, the water wouldn't always freeze in those areas. And so they'd call that open water. You'd have this huge break in the ice. You can see uh, one right there. There's this big break open water in the, in the middle of a river or at one side of the river. And so this particular section of open water was probably 50 yards long and 20 yards across. That's actually it. Plenty big enough for a, a, a snow machine to sink to the bottom of the river in. And as I took a good look at the river and the trail and the open water, I said, hey guys, we can't cross here. And they said, well, sure we can. And I said, why don't we just cross somewhere else? To which they explained to me that this is where the trail was, which means the snow was packed down on the trail. And if you take a snow machine off trail, particularly if you don't have the right kind of machine, we had trail riding machines, they weren't trail braking machines, you run the risk of sinking in snow that's 10 or 15 plus feet deep, which does sound really bad, but not nearly as bad as sinking in a river, right? That's what's going through my head. So I'm protesting this whole thing to no avail, and they were determined to cross there. And I knew that people, I had heard about this, cross rivers all the time in snow machines on open water. There's a technique to that, and I've heard all the stories, and I watch videos. You can go on YouTube and watch people do it. But that doesn't mean I wanted to try it. The truth is, I've always been a bit of an adventurous person my whole life, but there's a difference between paddling a canoe across a lake and running a whitewater kayak down the rapids, right? I'm more of a canoe kind of guy. There's a difference between rock climbing, you know, slow and methodical up a, a cliff face and speed repelling back down. I love to rock climb, but I'm not so much of a, a rapid repelling kind of guy. There's a difference between riding a motorcycle up through the mountains to see the fall leaves and, and look at the sights, and racing a motorcycle up through the mountains, scraping your knees on the corners, right, as you go around the curves. I love riding a motorcycle at my own pace. I'm not into racing. It's just the way that I am. And so I love taking the snow machine out and cruising down these trails in Alaska that we would do all the time and see animals and the mountains, and it was wonderful. But crossing open water was something entirely different, and I wasn't interested in the least. But this is the way that we were going. My choice was to navigate my way back home 50 or 60 miles by myself, which is never a good idea in Alaska during the winter. 
or I could drive this machine across the open water. So the guy in the lead said to me, look, don't worry about it. Just watch me do this. Pay attention to how I cross, and then, and then you try it. And I said, okay. And he guns it. He takes off like a rocket. He tears down onto the river, across the ice, and he, and he skips across the water up onto the opposite bank. And then I watch one at a time as these other guys do the same thing. And then it was my turn. <laughs> and I remember standing there, and they turned off their machines, and I'm standing by my machine, and I looked over at all of them, and I yelled across the river, you guys have a good time. Because <laughs> I'm not doing that. I'm just going to turn around and go back home. And... Uh, they're all yelling, no, 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 you come over, you come over. I'm like, ah, yeah, right, that's not going to happen. So the lead guy turns around and comes back across the river, and he says, look, you don't have a choice. You need to do this. It's, it's no big deal. It's just you've you got to decide it's going to happen, and then just make it happen. He said, you can do this, and he's really encouraging me. And after a long time of thinking about it and praying and wishing I'd fasted that morning, I said, okay. I'll do it. And I got myself together and I revved up my engine and, and just as I am about to take off, he says, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> one, one more thing. And I said, what? He said, when you go, you hit that throttle with all that you've got as fast as that machine will go and don't you let up until you hit land on the other side. He said, this is an all or nothing deal. There's no halfway version of this. Once you start, you have to completely commit because your only other option is to sink. Well, thank you for those words of encouragement. <laughs> I feel much better now. So I took his advice and I, I laid into the throttle on that machine and I took off as fast as that thing would move down the trail onto the ice and across the open water like a bullet and up onto the opposite bank. And I'm telling you, I felt such a powerful adrenaline rush when I stopped that I didn't know what to do with myself. So I looked at my friend and I said, I want to do that again. <laughs> and I did. I went back and forth that thing several times. And the key to making it every time is my confidence was built was completely committing to it. You just give it all you've got. It was all or nothing, you know. There's no, there's no compromise in that, in that moment. It was an all or nothing deal. Have you ever had one of those experiences? It's all or nothing. Probably many of you had. Well, the Apostle Paul certainly knew what it meant to live an all or nothing life when it came to following Christ. And he's trying to get that across here to his friends in this letter to the Philippians. So let's turn, if you have your Bibles, and if not, we'll have the, we'll have the scripture up on the screen. Let's turn to chapter 3 in the book of Philippians and open up this passionate letter from Paul to the church, okay? And I often try to imagine what it must have been like for those first century Christians to receive a letter from one of these great men of God. The sense of anticipation must have been palpable as they sat around the table together or they gathered in a room around the elders in a circle as the letter was open and read to the congregation. And the level of excitement was almost certainly heightened for the Philippians because these, were, these people were one of the greatest joys in Paul's life. He clearly took more comfort and joy in this particular church than in any of the others that he founded. And as you read the entire letter, the overwhelming love that Paul has for them is all over the pages, and it's all through his words. As well, the feelings of love and affection were mutual. 
The Philippian Christians loved Paul. At the time he wrote this letter, he was in prison, probably in Ephesus. And in those days, when you were in jail, the prison officials generally didn't feed or take care of you like they do today in our prisons. It was a different time. It was a different deal. So if you were going to eat or have something warm to put on in the winter, it was up to your friends and relatives to bring that to you. And so the Philippian church did just that. On many occasions, they regularly sent gifts to Paul when no other church offered any assistance. And even when he was in jail somewhere far off, the Philippians would send people from their church to help him and to bless him while he was in prison. And that was a very risky thing to do in those days, to travel to another country loaded down with food and money and goods to visit someone in prison. But they did it on a regular basis. In fact, in Philippians 4, 14 through 16, and we'll go back to chapter 3 in a moment, Paul says, It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Okay? The Philippians were being the hands and feet of Christ. And so it was never just Paul doing a great work for God, although he gets a lot of billing. It was never an individual from the church. It was all of them working together as a body. And it wasn't just talk for them. It wasn't just a once a week service for them. Being a Christian was an all or nothing commitment. And Paul took great joy in knowing that these Philippian Christians were the real deal. And they cared for him. And they loved him so much. And so we'll come back to this point in a few minutes, but let's jump into the letter at chapter 3 and hear Paul as he pours out his heart for the church, of which we are a part, by the way. You know that. We're all a part of the same body of Christ, past, present, and future. So Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and up to this point, in the first two chapters, Paul's been expressing his joy in the church members there, and he's been offering them all kinds of encouragement and catching them up on the recent events that have been going on with his ministry. And now he really starts to get down to business. Okay, let's read. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Okay, so, so first order of business, Paul is warning the church, protect yourselves. Who's he warning them about? Who are the, who are the dogs and the evildoers? Because in our culture today, when we call someone dog, you know, it's like, Hey, dog, what's up? Right? What's going on, dog? That's like a happy greeting, right? That's not how Paul meant it. We like dogs in our culture, don't we? We like Lassie. Right? We love dogs. We have Clifford, the big red dog. We have Snoop. No, I'm just kidding. We have Snoopy. We love dogs. A dog for us is a man's best friend, right? But not so for Paul's culture. Dogs generally at this point in history ran wild in the streets. They were dirty, carried disease. Sometimes they were vicious, pests. They were like vermin, okay? These were the lowest of the low. And so it was common at this time for Jews, some Jews, to use dogs as a term to describe Gentiles. 
who they considered ritually unclean. This was a, a nasty thing to say. It was like a really harsh slander of the Gentiles by the Jews. All right, But when, when Paul says, watch out for the dogs, he's referring to the Jews who are bound up in the law. He turns the tables in this harsh form of irony to say, watch out for the real dogs, those Judaizers who put all their confidence in the flesh and, and mutilate the flesh. And what he's specifically referring to, of course, first of all, is circumcision. The Jews often couldn't see past circumcision. They couldn't believe that you could be acceptable to God if you weren't circumcised. But he means much more than that here. When he talks about confidence in the flesh, circumcision was certainly a part of it, but beyond that, he's referring to the confidence that the Jews would put in their lineage, their family history, their descent, and in keeping the law, as we'll see. Okay, let's continue halfway through verse 4 where we left off. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, none of these Jews have anything on me as far as being righteous, blameless, zealous, a passionate Jew from a pure lineage. Paul's a rock star. He has every reason to boast. But he's also pointing out here that if, you, if your identity is in the flesh and the things of the flesh, just as his was in the past before he submitted his life to Christ, that instead of stressing something that actually makes you different or set apart from the world around you, which is what the Jews thought they were doing, you were instead stressing that which you had in common with the world. In other words, the one thing that you think makes you different, your confidence in the flesh, is the one thing that actually makes you just like the rest of the world. Because the world places its confidence in the flesh. But Paul says, we're to have no confidence in the flesh. Christians are supposed to be distinctive, set apart, different from the rest of the world. Stressing's one, stressing one's ethnicity and good works is exactly what the world does. So protect yourself from those dogs who will try to lure you into this way of thinking because it's rotten to the core. And as far as those who mutilate the flesh, in verse 2, Paul just takes his pounding of the religious Jews here a step further. Many of the Jews who practiced circumcision considered themselves to actually be the circumcision. And so Paul chooses his words very carefully here in order to drive his point home. The pagan cultures in Paul's day would mark their bodies or mutilate their bodies with incisions and gashes and open wounds to show their allegiance to their gods. Paul was using the term mutilation to make a point that the Jews who put their faith in circumcision are no different than the pagan cult members who worship false gods and mutilate their flesh. Okay, you get in the picture here. These are fighting words. Paul isn't holding back anything. It's no wonder he was in prison. These are highly offensive things to say to the establishment. And then he follows up his insult on the Jews with the mutilation comment by really sticking it to them. The Jews believe that they were the circumcision. But right after Paul talks about mutilation, he says, by the way, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. 
Okay, does that put this into context for you? Paul makes it crystal clear to the Christians in Philippi exactly who it is you're to watch out for and how the wrong kind of thinking can easily place you at odds with the true purposes of God. Stay away from the religious establishment. Okay, the religious Jews honestly believed that they were righteous, that they followed the heart of God, but in truth they were lost. And Paul knew that we're all susceptible to wrong thinking looking at things the wrong way, and we put our confidence in the flesh, we're putting our confidence in the wrong things. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. There's a clear implication here that it's possible, apparently, to not remain steadfast, or he wouldn't have said it. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. 2 Corinthians 11.3, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. These statements were made to the church. Paul knew that none of us is above potential reproach. We're all capable of screwing things up, thinking wrong thoughts, believing we're okay when we're not. And the point that he makes is the solution to guarding yourself from such an end is to put your confidence squarely in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've walked through times in my life when I thought I was okay with God, and I wasn't. Because I put my confidence in other things. When my confidence rests in anything other than Jesus Christ, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And that's what Paul is saying. And I just want to make a side note here. Because these verses we just read, particularly the reference in Hebrews, often causes believers a lot of angst, a lot of worry. I've had many people over the years express to me their concern that maybe they've fallen away from the faith to the point where they've, they've lost their salvation or maybe it's too late for them to be restored to Jesus Christ. I want to put your mind at ease in case any of you ever land here, okay? Maybe you're there this morning. The very fact that you feel concern about your salvation or you have a desire to be restored to God and to the faith rules out the possibility that you're beyond saving. And no matter what you do, you're, you're doomed to hell, okay? If a person has, in fact, fallen away in an irrevocable manner, and I believe that can happen, but if a person has fallen that far in an irrevocable manner... In that case, we're talking about hardened apostasy. Someone who has no interest in Jesus Christ or the truth in any way, shape, or form. They may say they do. They may say all the right things. But their heart has been hardened. If you're concerned about your salvation, rest assured, you're not that person who can never be saved. Okay? Judas didn't seek repentance. Peter did. They both denied Christ. The difference is that one of them humbled himself and repented. If you're concerned about your standing with God, your salvation, you haven't missed your opportunity to be saved or to be right with God again. It it may, however, 
mean that the Holy Spirit is calling you to repentance and restoration, which he offers freely to anyone who comes to him, all right? And Paul's making this point to the Philippian Christians. Guard against wrong thinking. It can lead you away from the truth, okay? Now, as we go back to our text in Philippians, we see Paul really putting an exclamation point on his message here. Let's start at verse 7 where we left off. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is a direct reference by Paul to Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 16, verses 25 and 26, where Jesus tells his disciples, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? See, Paul understood this. He knew the scripture and he knew what that meant for him. He had everything that anyone could ever want in life by the world's standards. He had respect. He had power. He had material wealth. He had influence. Everything that people work for their entire lives. And what does he say about it? He says, I count it all as loss. Why? Because knowing Christ Jesus is worth so much more than anything else we could ever possibly desire or attain in this life. Nothing else even holds a candle to knowing Jesus. And that fact, that realization for Paul, meant that he was willing to go all in. All or nothing. If he was going to follow Christ, it meant that Jesus would be in all, over all, and through all. Jesus would now overwhelm every aspect of Paul's life. He's all in. And he makes that clear to his friends in the church. He says, picking back up in our text, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In other words, without Christ, none of this means anything at all. So I'm willing to count it all as loss. Why? Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's goal, which we're going to talk about next week, is more important than anything he could ever gain on this earth. There's only one way, and that's all the way. It's all or nothing. No compromise. No wavering. No half commitments. No walking the fence. This deal is an all or nothing proposition. And Paul says, by any means necessary. By any means possible. And we'll get into this a bit more next week. And we'll talk about suffering. And why sometimes we suffer, even Christians. And and talk about taking up our cross and following him. But the point here is... There's no plan B. There's no backup plan. It's just Jesus. Only Jesus. All Jesus. There is nothing else. And so, what does that mean for the church? It means that any member of the church, any individual, that doesn't do this, that doesn't go all in, affects every other member of the church. 
Why? Because we are one body. Okay? It's an all or nothing deal. It isn't just a, uh, this isn't just for our personal cause. It's for the cause of the church. The effectiveness of the church in fulfilling the great commission to make disciples of all people. That commission rises and falls with the effectiveness of each member of the body going all in or holding back. If we could really grasp this today, if we could get a hold of it and let the truth of it sink in. You see, our responsibility doesn't begin and end only with ourselves on our personal lives. Why? Why? Because we're individual members of a body which needs all of its parts working together, fully committed, all or nothing. So what does that mean for us now? Right now at Upcountry Church. Well, let's just get down to it. Let's scratch the surface just a little bit here in these last few minutes, and I'm closing. And let's talk about a handful of things. Last year, this church adopted a family in our neighborhood for Thanksgiving. And we gathered up food and, and gift cards to Ingalls and from our congregation here, and we fed that family for Thanksgiving. And in truth, we gave them enough food and gift card money to buy them groceries for a couple of weeks. And it had, a, had a, an incredible effect. We're going to do that again this year, but we're going to add a couple more families because our congregation is, has grown, and I think we can bring in enough food and gift cards for three families, maybe even four. I don't know. But what if, instead of just giving out of our excess, we gave up a little of our own provision? How far would that go? I don't know. How much more would we be able to give? It depends on every member doing their part. It's all or nothing. I stood out here yesterday with Billy and Kathy Smith, one of our families that we're going to adopt this year. These people, in many ways, are destitute. They have nothing. They're selling personal items uh, to live. And they told me about how last Thanksgiving they didn't know about our church. There was a family nearby that didn't have anything either. And someone had given Billy and Kathy a, a turkey and a ham and some food. So they cut the turkey in half. They cut the ham in half. They took half of everything that was given to them and they walked over and gave it to the family. And then at Christmas time that year, every gift that they got, they rewrapped and they took it next door and gave it to the family next door. That is the body of Christ at work. Amen. Giving out of our own need. We can do more this year because we have more people to participate than we did last year. How much can we do? I don't know. I know it's an all-or-nothing deal. Why do we have more people this year in the church? Well, it isn't because we advertise. We don't even have a sign out by the highway. We've done absolutely zero advertising of this church since we opened. The fact is, we have more people this year than last 
because you've invited people to come to church with you. It's all or nothing. How many more could we have this time next year? I don't know. But I do know that it depends on every member doing their part. Our Compass Ministry put together blessing bags last month and we gave those out to homeless people on the street corners and we heard a powerful testimony from Sandra Hammock about that. That was a handful of people participating to put those together. What if at the next Compass meeting this Friday night, more of us brought items that go inside those bags and help put them together and then we handed them out, not one time. What if we had enough to hand out all through the holidays to the end of the year? How many people could we touch with those bags? I don't know. But what I do know is that we could touch many, many more if every member of the body does their part. It's all or nothing. We're having our night of thanks coming up. And it doesn't seem like much to come to church and eat pie and share a testimony, but I'm telling you that sharing what God has done for you with other people can have a profound effect in someone's life who may be facing a similar situation at that point in their own life. We should always be prepared to share a testimony about what God is doing in our lives. Chance meetings I've had with people recently, and I just shared a testimony, an incredible effect in their life. That's part of the function of the church, to encourage and uplift each other. It's every member doing their part. It's all or nothing. Your giving to this church keeps our labor going forward. It, it literally keeps me and Mary Beth here during the week doing what we're doing, just as it did with Paul in the Philippian church. Are you giving faithfully, consistently? How much more could we do? I don't look at it. I don't know. But I know that if every member did their part, how much could we do? How much more? I don't know. That's up to God. But our job is to be all in. All or nothing. Your participation, your commitment in this church keeps the body of Christ growing. Our service ministry, our kids' ministries, our worship ministry, our youth ministry, men's and women's ministries, they all need more participation. They require us to be all in if we're going to accomplish all that we can. Our missionaries that we're supporting all over the world depend on our money so that they can carry the gospel to places that you and I would never step foot in our lifetime. We have missionaries in places that we would never go. Are we doing all that we can? I don't know. It's all or nothing. There are families in this church right now who I know firsthand because you've told me who have been profoundly affected by the love and care and concern for them that they've received from other members of this body. Your prayers, your encouraging words, your gifts, medicine, money, food that some of you have shared with other people in our church. John Garrish has called me, I don't know how many times this week, overwhelmed by the love of this body because we provided some meals for them this week. It's all we did. We cooked some extra meals. You have no idea the effect that has on people who are in need. It's all wonderful. And to be honest, I praise God in near amazement all the time for what this little church has accomplished in the past year. And it's because of your commitment and love for God and for each other. It's awesome. But I'm just asking today, 
What more can we do? I think we can do a lot more. And as we continue to grow, I think we can do a lot more. But it's going to mean that we're all in. And the moment that happens, I promise you that we will be scrambling to keep up with the growth of this church, the distribution of blessings to each other in our community, and the ministry that's pouring out of this place. We'll be scrambling to keep up with it. This is an all or nothing deal. And just in case it sounds like a lot of work and no reward, let me be clear. What you gain when you go all in for God is infinitely greater than riches and power and influence and respect that this world could ever give. And many of you know that. I don't have to tell you because you're already there. What you gain is true fulfillment, true joy, real peace, authentic love and friendship. Worldwide membership, by the way, to the body of Christ and a relationship with him that cannot be compared to anything else that we could ever experience. That's the truth. I wouldn't lie. That's the truth. Let's go all in, okay? Let's go all in and see where God takes us. Let's pray.